We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. On 12 September 1918, a tank attack had just been led by General George S. Patton, the legendary leader of American tank forces in France in World War II. Patton was just a young colonel in World War I, and now he walked along the top of American trenches with an American infantry brigade sensibly taking shelter in their trenches. Sensible because a creeping German artillery barrage was moving their way. Patton commented that the commanding general of those infantry, General Douglas MacArthur, was standing on a small hill near him. Patton walked over to him and together they stood in the open watching the enemy artillery explosions as they came closer and closer. Patton wrote that he thought both of them wanted to take cover but didn't want to show fear in the presence of the other. One shell exploded close to them, covering them in dirt. Patton remained standing, but he visibly flinched. MacArthur said to him, Don't worry, Colonel. You never hear the one that gets you. Patton wrote to his family that he thought MacArthur was the bravest man he'd ever met. So let's find out how MacArthur came to be staying at Room 80 at the Hyde's Hotel in Cairns. General MacArthur is somebody that I have mixed feelings about, but I won't let that stand in the way of telling you a good yarn. The story begins with the lightning-fast conquest of the Philippines by the Japanese in World War II. The only American and Philippine troops holding out on the main island of Luzon by 22nd February 1942 are bottled up in the American island fortress known as Corregidor at the end of the Bataan Peninsula. The Japanese had put the cork in the stopper to that fortress by 16 February 1942. The American Chief of Staff, General Marshall, tells General MacArthur that President Roosevelt ordered that he is to leave his soldiers in Corregidor and come to Australia to organise troops for the eventual reconquest of the Philippines and the defeat of the Japanese. MacArthur is not keen to abandon his troops. On 9th March, President Roosevelt gives MacArthur a direct order to leave the Philippines immediately. MacArthur promises to leave by 15th March. During World War II in the Pacific, a lovely Japanese lady broadcast messages in English of sweet doom to the Allied soldiers fighting Japan. She was known as Tokyo Rose. Well, her audience, and she probably had every fighting man and woman in the Pacific listening to her, she played great music and it was fun listening to and laughing at her announcements of doom, 
heard her announce that General MacArthur would be a prisoner of the Japanese within a month. Some US Navy officers were giving odds of 5 to 1 against MacArthur escaping from Corregidor alive. The escape plan that was settled on for MacArthur was first to leave Corregidor by PT boats. PT boats were very small, fast boats that carried torpedoes. They would sail to Del Monte, the home of an American company by that name, on the island of Mindanao. And from there, he was to take a B-17 long-range bomber to Australia. The PT boats came to rescue him, his family and staff, but they'd seen much better days. Beggars couldn't be choosers. So on 11 March 1942, MacArthur, his wife Jean, his son Arthur, seriously, who would call their son Arthur MacArthur, and other members of his staff that he would need to continue the war from Australia, stole quietly out of the harbour of Corregidor that night. When MacArthur got to Del Monte on 13th March, waiting to spirit him away to Australia were two worn-out B-17s with a couple of very young, inexperienced pilots. MacArthur didn't want his flight to Australia to be a suicide mission, so he contacted Major General George Brett, who was organising MacArthur's escape, to demand the best three B-17s in the US Air Force that were located in Hawaii or the United States to be sent to rescue him with experienced pilots. Brett was the most senior US Army officer in Australia and was therefore the commanding general of US forces in Australia until such time as MacArthur arrived. Poor Brett found suitable US Navy B-17s that were available in Townsville. But MacArthur was Army and there was no way he was going to allow the Navy to rescue him. MacArthur was, to put it bluntly, a pain in the ass of a man. Luckily, though, the bombers in Townsville were transferred from Navy Command to the Army on 14th March. And just so you know, during World War II, there was no US Air Force. Planes were either part of the Army or the Navy. Brett sent three of these latest Model B-17s to rescue MacArthur. They were first sent to Batchelor Airfield in the Northern Territory. There they had extra fuel tanks mounted in the bomb bay doors to give them the range to fly the 2,600 kilometres to the plantation airfield owned by the Del Monte Company, where the MacArthur contingent was waiting. To get to Del Monte, the plane's flight path took them through the middle of two Japanese airfields only 50 kilometres apart. The B-17s arrived at the airfield around midnight. There was a flare at either end of the runway, but no other lighting. It was lucky that the two regular co-pilots had been replaced with pilots who were familiar with the landing strip at Del Monte. Landing in these circumstances was a fine piece of flying. It seems that the MacArthur's had arrived with massive amounts of luggage. Some things never change. They were told that they could only bring one piece of luggage each. Very unusual for an American airline, they usually allowed two pieces of luggage. 
On 17 March, not long after midnight, the two planes took off, again at night and just with flares. Their trip involved flying over what was now enemy-controlled islands, Celebes, Timor and New Guinea. But luck stayed with them and no Japanese fighters intercepted them. To make things interesting, it turned out that each of the planes was carrying a stowaway. As MacArthur was boarding his planes to leave the Philippines, he told the personnel who weren't lucky enough to be coming with him to fend for themselves. And that's what these two enterprising young men did. They stowed away on the planes, one to each plane. In Australia, they were charged and locked up for overloading the aircraft. Still, that sure beat being a prisoner of the Japanese. When the planes reached Darwin Airfield, it was under attack by the Japanese. The planes had to go on to Batchelor Airfield. The big Japanese attack on Darwin had taken place about a month before, and the Japanese were still making regular raids on the port. A third B-17 was later sent to Del Monte airstrip to pick up the last of MacArthur's staff and some valuable papers. When he landed, MacArthur's first concern was about the build-up of American troops in Australia to drive the Japanese back. He asked an American officer about this, but the American officer said there weren't many troops in Australia. MacArthur thought he was wrong. He had to be wrong. He was just asking the wrong guy. Somebody else would know. But at last, some decent food for the general. They breakfasted on canned baked beans and canned peaches. I love canned baked beans. Now this trip to Melbourne is starting to seem really long-winded, isn't it? I guess that's because it was. Australian National Airways, I knew it as Trans-Australian Airways when I was growing up, sent two commercial DC-3 airliners to fly the MacArthur Party to Alice Springs. This got MacArthur's hackles up again. He, he didn't want to fly on a commercial airliner. So on 18 March, MacArthur sent some of his people in the two DC-3s to go ahead to Melbourne. MacArthur's wife, Jean, was totally over this exciting journey by now and said that there was no way that she was flying anywhere else. A train was made available for MacArthur, and what was left of his entourage. It was a pretty shitty train. In fact, it was a narrow-gauge three-car wooden train pulled by a steam locomotive. Well, they were all steam locomotives in those days. The seats were wooden benches going the length of the carriage. The second carriage was set up as a dining car, with a long table, wash tubs filled with ice, and an Australian Army stove. But to get from one carriage to the next, the train had to be stopped. So when you wanted something to eat, you had to get the train to stop, get off the carriage you were sitting in, walk up to the dining car, get on, etc. This trip took 70 hours. The line ended at Tarawi Railway Station, 220 kilometres north of Adelaide. It arrived at 2pm on 20th March. His arrival was supposed to be a secret, some secret. A big crowd, well as big as the little town of Tarawri could muster, was waiting for his arrival. 
A big cheer went up, well, as big as the few people at Tarawi could muster. And now this insignificant gathering of concerned Australians waiting to hear what the Americans were going to do to rescue us from the Japanese was given a treat. MacArthur told them, The President of the United States ordered me to break through the Japanese lines and proceed to Corregidor to Australia for the purpose, as I understand it, of organising an American offensive against Japan, the primary purpose of which is the relief of the Philippines. I came through and, and this is the part where history was about to be made, when MacArthur uttered for the first time ever the words that were to become his signature promise. I shall return. Now MacArthur's party switched trains and reached their next stop, Cooinga, 130 kilometres north of Adelaide. MacArthur was joined there by Colonel Dick Marshall, who'd flown ahead from Alice Springs on the TAA planes. He was the bearer of bad tidings. There was no huge army waiting for MacArthur in Australia. Marshall told him that there were fewer than 32,000 military personnel in total of all sorts throughout all of Australia. I don't know if Boy Scouts and Girl Guides were included. They had less than 100 aircraft. A lot of them were just gypsy moths, biplane trainers with fabric covering on their wings, and they weren't armed. Hearing that, MacArthur whispered, God have mercy on us. This was the greatest and worst shock that MacArthur had in the entire war. Finally, on the evening of 21 March, MacArthur reached Adelaide. His party changed trains there. His party changed trains there for the luxurious Melbourne Express. At 9.30 in the morning of 22 March, he reached Melbourne's Spencer Street station. His trip had taken a harrowing, exhausting 10 days. MacArthur took over the entire sixth floor at the Menzies Hotel. His headquarters was located in the Trustees Executive and Agency Company building, all of it, at 40 to 43 Collins Street, Melbourne. On 18 April 1942, MacArthur was appointed as Supreme Commander, Southwest Pacific Area. His headquarters was first based at Victoria Barracks in Melbourne. I told you MacArthur was a bit of a bastard, a man to hold a grudge, and General Brett, the man who had had enormous problems organising the B-17 bombers to get MacArthur and his retinue safely away from Del Monte, had incurred the wrath of the General because of the dilapidated condition of the aircraft he first sent and the inexperience of their pilots. At first, things seemed to be going well for General Brett. In April 1942, he was appointed commander of Allied Air Forces in Australia. But MacArthur, soon after, in June 1942, had him removed from that position and sent back to the United States. It was ironic, and MacArthur didn't know this, to be fair to him, that it was Brett's recommendation to Washington that saw MacArthur put in command of the Allied forces in Australia, which led to Washington's decision to have him 
evacuated from Corregidor and saved from becoming a prisoner of the Japanese. So now I'm getting to the point of this program, MacArthur staying at the Hyde's Hotel in Cairns. Not long after the South West Pacific Command was set up, MacArthur sensibly wanted his headquarters to be much closer to the front. So it was moved to the AMP building at the corner of Queens and Edward Street in Brisbane. One of the marriages made in heaven happened when on 4th August 1942, General George C. Kenny took over command of the Allied Air Forces in the southwest Pacific area. The relationship between these two men was a good one that saw the Army Air Force and the Army cooperation working perfectly and to devastating effect for the Japanese. On occasion, MacArthur would go further north to Cairns. His favourite hotel in Cairns was Hyde's Hotel. The Americans and the Australians took over the hotel during the war for accommodation for their military personnel. General MacArthur, his wife Jean and their son, Arthur MacArthur, stayed in their favourite suite at the hotel room 80, overlooking Lake Street and Shield Streets with a balcony. That room is known today as the MacArthur Suite. He even had dinner there at least once. MacArthur didn't apparently escape unscathed from his horrific ordeal of facing the Japanese onslaught in the Philippines. Being cornered at Corregidor and then undertaking a harrowing flight to safety, anyone familiar with photographs of MacArthur will be used to seeing him holding a corncob pipe in his hand or a walking stick. He also frequently put his hands on his hips. He did these things because after that experience, he suffered from what was called Batan jitters. His hands trembled uncontrollably. Cairns also played another vital role in the war. In 1943, with only three exhausted American divisions under his command, MacArthur needed the Australian divisions to begin his drive back to the Philippines through New Guinea. With roads there being non-existent, transportation depended heavily on moving men and supplies mostly by sea. But the problem of getting enough landing craft was solved by delivering large quantities of disassembled landing craft more could be packed into a ship's hold that way, from the United States to Cairns, and then having them reassembled here. And just a footnote there, another general who escaped from the Japanese was Australia's youngest general, General Gordon Bennett. He was a decorated hero from the Gallipoli campaign. He was in command of the Australian 8th Division, which was being sent to the Middle East. It arrived at Singapore... General Percival, the British commander, was concerned about threats developing from Japan and wanted the Australian division to stay in Singapore. It wasn't equipped or trained to fight jungle warfare, but Bennett agreed that it was needed there more than in the Middle East. When the Japanese did invade Malaya, the British, Australian and Indian troops were badly handled. Percival surrendered a bit too quickly. On his own initiative, Bennett escaped back to Australia. On arrival, he was greeted as a hero, and over the next months he wrote two training manuals on tactics to fight the Japanese from what he'd learned in Malaya. 
controversy erupted in 1943, though, about whether Bennett's conduct in escaping from Singapore was cowardice. Did he wrongly desert the men under his command? The veterans of the 8th Division who survived the war always supported their general's escape. But in 1943, after receiving a white feather in the mail, a symbol of cowardice, and having a letter delivered to the authorities in Australia from the pathetic British commander at Singapore, General Percival, criticising Bennett for leaving Singapore, Bennett retired from the army in 1944. He passed away in 1962. More than 15,000 people lined the streets for his funeral procession. For this man, escaping to lead the fight against the Japanese destroyed his career and his life. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites. <laughs>